The AWS for Software Companies podcast, episode 12, Mergers and Acquisition Best Practices Roundtable with Tim LaGrasso of Kickdrum and Matt Thompson of AWS. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS for Software Companies podcast, where we speak to software executives around the world about their journeys to the cloud, overcoming obstacles, and the role that Amazon Web Services play in their success. Today, we have a roundtable discussion featuring Tim LaGrasso of Kickdrum and Matt Thompson of AWS discussing with several industry peers some best practices for software mergers and acquisitions. Good afternoon. We do have a really interesting topic today. I have uh Two distinguished panelists with me today. Uh, my name is Karthik Krishnamurthy. Matt Thompson here from AWS, and uh, we have Tim Lagrasso from Kickdrum. So I'm going to let you both introduce yourself, uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, this panel. We're going to talk uh, about uh, M&A and about uh, product integrations in M&A. Before uh, joining AWS and before coming back to tech, I uh, spent a lot of time uh, in consulting um, with over 50 different transactions. Product integrations are hard, and they fail in different ways. This is something that I don't have to tell you. Uh, we are here to uh, see what repeatable patterns we've seen to make them successful and learn from this failure. I have Tara Jones here somewhere. Yes, Tara's uh, our resident expert on M&A from AWS as well, so she will pipe in as we need to. But on to you, Tim. Hi, everybody. Tim LaGrasso. Um, Excited to be here. I have about 20 years of experience in M&A. I started out my, you know, and it's not been focused on M&A. I'm a software engineer by heart and got involved with M&A at Digital River where they were rolling up e-commerce e companies that were doing downloadable software. And I would participate in diligence all the way back then when there was no real kind of formal diligence practice that existed. And evolved to kind of Digital River spinning out some of that, some of their acquisitions, and I went with those and helped lead the deal team that sold them, did some mergers once they exited, then hopped over to Kickdrum, who I'm with right now, who has a, a focus on PE diligence, and I'm one of the PE diligence leads. Our role is to kind of expose risk to uh, to the bankers who don't talk tech at all. So there's an interesting challenge there of being able to say, hey, there's, you know, they have a really old version of, you know, some database that can't be patched. And how, how, does, a, how does a banker who wants to know, well, what's the dollar value of that risk? How, so you have to kind of translate from tech to finance. Uh, so we spend a lot of time there. And we, we typically use a, a maturity model for a proxy for risk. So we look at, you know, the various dimensions of how they manage people, their their software, their infrastructure, um, and their compliance. Look at all of that and measure kind of you know, their maturity to to drive a, a, a view that's both quantitative wherever possible and qualitative on risk. So excited to be here and uh, looking forward to going through the, the rest of the session. Before I go to Matt, just... Uh, one quick follow-up. What kind of macro trends do you see this year? You know, this is uh, uh, an interesting year with high interest rates and lower valuation. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, PE driven have gone down significantly in volume. I think valuation has also suffered, you know, similar to cars, you know, interest rates directly affect the valuation of of most assets, houses, cars, everything else. Um, And so we've seen a slowdown there. Uh, I think there's a big opportunity when you start looking at um, strategic acquisitions. So you have a uh, ISV or a, a, a software player who wants to integrate and tuck in new products because there's a lot less uh, PE activity and they're not driving up pricing. So there's a real opportunity to go do some deal shopping out there, I think, and find some interesting opportunities, especially in the smaller startups that might not get favorable terms for, for next rounds of funding. So. On to you, Matt. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my name is Matt Thompson. I'm actually the director of compute products at AWS, but I don't think that's necessarily why I'm here. Uh, I actually used to be the chief product officer at Bitly uh, and did a bunch of product roles before that where I've definitely acquired a bunch of companies. Um, So I think that's the more useful part of me, maybe, hopefully here. Uh, Let's see. And then the only other, just to kind of quasi answer your question as well around trends, I will say I do still sit on a couple of boards uh, and I think what Tim was just saying is pretty accurate. Uh, what I've seen is uh, us going shopping on the more well-capitalized startups um, today, where we're looking at kind of differentiated data sets, if you will, um, for the kind of, let's call it synergistic buy, if you will. So I have been seeing that. We haven't done anything yet on those companies, but I do see that going on. Matt, I, I know uh, um, compute platforms, um, is what you do, and uh, we think that this uh, having the right architecture is an important consideration when you're thinking about acquiring companies or integrating them. So that's something that uh, we are seeing more and more of. So I don't know if you have any anything that you want to add now or later from that perspective. I think that's definitely helpful too. Yeah. Uh, let me say this. Actually, like, I th- so the answer is yes. There is there are some things we care about there and that make a lot of sense. Um, I think especially uh, when, well, actually, can I stop for a second and just ask a question? Sure. How many of you are product leaders in here, and how many of you would do think about doing a, a merger or an acquisition like in this calendar year? I just want to see, are we like on the right topic here? So that's like uh, 10%. All right, just we should just train that a little bit. Okay, yeah. that's helpful. Um, so on this one, um, the applicability side, uh, you know, most M&A just totally fails. Uh, we were just talking about this earlier. It just totally fails, um, PE a little less so. Uh, and one of the reasons I believe that to be so is because very often the the product teams can't get together and turn out a very nice MVP quickly. Um, they can't get like that very first version. And so this goes to your question now, Kartik, like, which is, um, what I typically find is monolithic architectures make that super slow. So if you're containerized, have nice APIs, a RESTful API always helps. I think those are the things I would typically look at from an infrastructure and compute infrastructure standpoint um, when I am doing an M&A kind of deal. You know, Kickdrum thinks about this a lot. And one of the areas that I think is important is when you're dealing with monoliths, there's strategies to reduce the the desire to confront all the tech debt and instead of trying to break up the monolith, just build some new APIs really targeted 
and uh, focus on getting that value to market quickly. And we see that even in monoliths, where there's that like focus and and diligent analysis, you can kind of subvert, subvert that. Um, but it does require kind of eyes wide open focus when you're going into the transaction. Thanks, Tim. Uh, I want another show of hands. Uh, how many of you have gone through an acquisition? Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's a much larger group, and you know, so I'm. Yeah. I'm sure that's not the last acquisition that they're going to go through. So, But just uh, maybe building on what um, you were saying, Tim, how do we think companies should identify product synergies? Because uh, the process and best practices for doing that are different. I don't know if there's any words of wisdom that you have. I'll go to you first. I know we switched this up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll go to Matt next. You know, I, I think one of the things we see often in in PE-led and strategic M&A is uh, that product is not often involved in the transaction. A lot of times uh, it's driven by finance and business dev. And uh, it's important to, to include product data, you know, uh, and think about things like POCs, understand the post-transaction integration costs at a reasonable level so that when you actually do close, you have the right amount of investment, time, and focus allocated to the integration to make it successful. Where they, the transactions that fail the most, especially in strategics, are when the transaction closes and both teams have their original operating goals that they have to go hit, and there's no plan to go and do the integration. Dan Adobe, so uh, haven't been a part of an acquisition, but have had to do the technical due diligence many times. I'm curious about your time metric to measure failure. Like sometimes it's a very long horizon. So tell me the longest success maybe? Like where do you see an over under on time? I mean, that's a good question. Uh, I think that depends on the thesis of the acquisition itself, right? So. Uh, typically, in a strategic acquisition, your goal is to, uh, what you're thinking about is either build, buy, or partner to get that capability, and you want to do the one that costs you the least amount of money, and you can do the fastest. And in, when I look at success versus failure, it's, did you actually achieve the, the least amount of cost and the fastest delivery of that new capability? A lot of times, an acquisition seems like it'll be faster, but if it's not planned out, it ends up taking years to get there where a partnership or building it yourself, because those require the planning and the product engagement, are more thoughtfully allocated. Yeah, let me answer that slightly differently because uh, I'll just give you a number. Uh, three years. Like, honestly, the answer is always three years to me. Like, this is different with PE, though. This is, like, a very different thing. So when I think about this, like, I've never done a tuck-in, per se. It's always been, I need this data set to build a net new product of some kind for potentially a different audience. If you think you're going to get a product that is built, going to market with traction in less than three years in that case, like, you're usually probably, like, not very realistic. Um, so that's always been kind of my threshold on it. And that's usually actually how we amortize the, the money on it, too, in the past. Sure. Can I actually make one other comment, sure. too, just because this is very interesting that we're from different 
I've never been involved uh, in M and A and guaranteed like more startup or whatever where product wasn't involved. Um, in fact, I remember so many times basically sitting there building like uh, mockups for what a product of two different data sets or two different companies will look like in time to basically sell the deal to both the board, um, the other company, our company, et cetera. So I've always been very kind of involved in that from that angle. Yeah, that's great. I think those are more likely to be successful, but certainly the planning needs to happen and not overly optimistically to, to achieve that goal. So Matt, let me uh, build a little bit on that. Um, so when you're thinking about an acquisition as, um, as a way to innovate, as a way for you to expand your product portfolio as opposed to just looking at uh, a revenue gap or um, uh, something that you're doing short term, right? How how do you train yourself to do that? Because, you know, you have this three-year window. Yep, yep. So, I mean, typically this is no different than market, uh, one, building a total addressable market analysis mm -hmm. for uh, the this joint product, like it's just a classic business school activity type of thing. Um, and, you know, and then working backward from that, you been, then look at, say, which partners, like, I do think for this panel, I do think the most interest, instructive ones are usually when you're buying a company for a data set of some type. Um, and then you can kind of go back and say, like, with this data set that I'm going to pay X for and plus the team, right, um, and I have this product, which I think is going to serve this addressable market, that's how I kind of usually value back. So it's it's... There's nothing like magic about it per se, but it definitely comes with a ROI, I think, as someone said earlier in the first uh, panel of the day, an ROI is very important on it. Yeah, no, I, and I think the, from my consulting experience, right, I think the failure rate is high because you keep pushing the hardest problems to a later time, right? If you don't have the, the ability or the mindset to approach product integrations from pre-day one, I think you're in trouble. Yeah, let me give you, actually, I'll give you, I think, some examples I can talk about here that I think are relevant, right? So it's not vague. Like, so when I was at Bitly, one of the great things about Bitly is everything, everybody's ever used a little Bitly link, right? Well, that all goes through a first-party interstitial. For what it's worth, you collect first-party data, cookie data on the customer, right? Problem is, it's not secure, it's not private, you can't merge it with other third-party data very well. And so one of the acquisitions we thought about doing was with a company that did a very good job merging third-party and first-party data um, on that. That's the kind of thing that we didn't sell to advertisers or ad exchanges at that time. We have to like develop that market. Um, we actually have to make sure that the, this uh, company's um, uh, you know, merge technology actually worked in, like say, the UK mm -hmm. or France with GDPR. Um, so it's like there's all kinds of those considerations that go about, uh, or that come about. So hi, I'm Preeti Srinivasan. Uh, I work at Druva, and um, I help my organization grow uh, and both in organic ways and new product initiatives and also in inorganic ways, right? So some of the lessons that um, we see, especially when we are evaluating uh, you know, assets, we kind of like have this like bottoms up 
approach. So uh, when we early on in the conversation itself, like you know, the panel was talking about, so we have like product, uh, we have uh, an engineering or, or engineering representative or somebody who really understands technology and architecture well, uh, being early on and part of the conversation. So uh, we get in early on the conversation. Uh, we uh, not only we, we look at just demos, but also like try the product out, uh, understand. Uh, the, don't don't buy a product for what you imagine it to be. Buy it for what it actually does. That it can be for different things, right? First, you start from your strategy. What are you trying to do here, right? Are you trying to grow a line of business? Are you creating a new uh, revenue stream? And are you looking for new uh, a new talent, or are you looking for uh, experts in this uh, in this uh, area, or is this like you want to like accelerate your innovation and you just want to go right past and uh, keep going on that? So uh, starting off with very clear goals. That is a high-level direction, but when it comes to evaluation, technical due diligence, understanding the architecture that lies behind, uh, we work very closely uh, with as like in a product and engineering and and see that in tandem, and then we bring this out uh, to to the execs in the organization, which is like you know further goes on to the board and so on. Like, hey, this is what we saw, this is what we thought, uh, these were the strengths. And speaking of the architecture, right? So uh, one of the uh, previous acquisitions which we did was like based on uh, AWS. So and we are a company who uh, born like Amit was mentioning in the previous uh, talk. We were like we were born in AWS. We built on that, so we have like a we we could easily like evaluate it. But when it comes to completely different architectures, especially when you're looking at uh, monoliths or when you're looking at like a different kind of services that's being built, it's it's a much deeper conversation, and it's good to start to have that like uh, early on. Uh, in that process, than having that as an afterthought. So, just just wanted to share some of the uh, you know thought process that we go through when we are evaluating uh, for uh, MNAs. Thank you, I, I totally agree. I, I think um, when you're thinking about tuck-ins or strategic acquisitions, I've I've seen companies even go so far as to do POCs on the integration ahead of time, and those are the ones that are the most successful because you kind of find all the problems ahead of time. And you can actually have a realistic estimate at that point for what it'll take to complete your vision for the integration. Thanks, Tim. Anybody else have any thoughts that they want to add? I, I thought Preeti's comments were great. A couple things I'd add in addition that kind of relates to the ROI model. I think you have to have a theory of the case for what the monetization strategy is going to be. Is this a new feature that makes you more competitive or is it a new product line or an add-on or expansion opportunity? So I think getting some field and potentially even customer advisory board intel or insights into the the opportunity before you actually consummate the transaction is one thing. I think the other thing, and I think this is most important, is you talked about three years. I think for a large company, three-year horizon is reasonable. I think for a startup, if you can't get value in 12 to 18 months, you don't even bother. So I think you need a 90-day and a 12-month, like here's what the plan is going to be. And I think the most critical thing is there has to be a realistic funding model for this. You'll see acquisitions. I've been involved in a few where you do the acquisition, but you haven't quite budgeted the OPEX required to actually do the integration and deliver on the, the joint product opportunity. And those things die on the vine because everybody's got 
a thousand other OKRs they need to focus on. Nobody's going to have free resources that they can loan. So you, you need to have a funding plan that actually makes it likely it's going to be successful. Otherwise, you're just wasting balance sheet dollars. Yeah, no, I, I really resonate with the one-year model. Um, when I was at BCG, the one-year mark was a big mark for us to think about product integrations. So appreciate that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that as well. I, you know, a cab or other ways to identify the product white space that's available to you is, it doesn't have to be the cab. Sometimes that's hard because of confidentiality. But, um, you know, having a good feel for what white space you're addressing with the product is very important. And the funding is, of course, super critical. Okay, I'm going to switch gears into what can you do to accelerate and get this value, right? So we've talked about um, we want to do this fast. So, um, how soon can software companies think about this? You know, what can they do in the diligence phase to accelerate this, or in the pre-close phase? I think the way to to think about this, I I'm a big advocate of the POCs. Like, if you really want to accelerate the the value, understand what you're trying to build right away. Do the work up front to to have a clear vision for the product that's documented and a plan to execute it. Um, the other thing to think about in that context is what are going to be the friction points between your two teams and the integrations that exist there? Uh, do they operate at different release cadences? Uh, do they have different QA processes? Are you able to test these integrations in, in a realistic way with data uh, that represents customer you know, experiences. All of those things need to be thought about and built. That, a lot of times that tooling doesn't exist at the time of the integration, but needs to be there to know it's going to work. So understanding that, you know, all of those kind of building blocks of your of your uh, SDLC and, and, and your processes are, are very important. Yeah, actually, uh, just I'll add on that last one. The the one mental note I made when, uh, when Kartik asked me if I wanted to be on this panel was, I definitely got to talk about religions. Like, in terms of like developer religions, you know, like I, I can't tell you how many of my um, my great potential M&As have been scuttled by like a developer set that doesn't want to code in Go or something like that. Like I feel like there's like all of that needs to be handled ahead of time. Um, you brought up the tools, the build tools. Oh, we don't build out of Slack, you know, like that can go on for like three more, three four months, you know. So those are the types of things that like you have to do the diligence on early and get consensus on it early on or you're just you're messed up for a while those are the, the, the developer religions um and i used to be a developer so i can say that okay we're going to switch to uh the role of customer data uh, i think that's one of the aspects of um doing one plus one greater than two in terms of cross-sell in terms of being able to expand your uh, your customer footprint um so what has worked well from your experience? Yeah, I mean, so during, I mean, I, in the context of diligence, uh, customer data is a is a very good signal for uh, interesting things. Like, so customer retention can tell you, do they have potentially product issues you don't have some awareness of? Um, Customer usage data can tell you are the are the features you're interested in actually used in the product you're in the in the 
applications you're buying, right? So if, if they have this feature and that's really the thing you want to buy, but nobody uses it, that's a good red flag for maybe this isn't ready for me. I need to do some more digging there to make sure it, it's a valid, uh, it's going to solve my problem, right? So those are kind of two examples. Uh, we actually, in our diligence, just ask for as much of that sort of data as we can get and like slice it and dice it every way we can think of in the context of the investment thesis. So it really has to be contextualized with what are the goals of that business and, and, and that transaction. And then let's go look at all these signals for the telemetry that, that exposes a risk or validates the thesis in some way. And the role of clean rooms? Yeah, so there's a clean room for pretty much every transaction. And uh, usually those are, uh, you know, tracked. I mean, the, sometimes you'll find, you know, smaller PE firms, they just use, you know, more informal clean rooms. But the bigger ones have, like, tracking to the point where if you open a document they had five months after the transaction, they know about it and they can come back to you and say, hey, what are you doing Open this transaction? It's been closed or died. That's none of your business anymore. So there's a lot of that that goes on. Um, it's a good way to give a, a safe space for the targets to share information in a way that, that they feel confident isn't going to be abused. In particular with the customer data and being able to uh, prepare ahead of the close of transaction, what you're going to be, who you're going to cross-sell on day one, who you're going to upsell. Uh, I don't know if that's something that uh, you feel strongly about. We used to, that used to be the number one thing uh, from a consulting perspective in terms of value creation that is often overlooked that we pushed hard on. Yeah, I, so Kickdrum doesn't do a lot of kind of that go-to-market diligence, but you know that data is looked at from a quality of earnings perspective. It's looked at uh, from a, a how valuable is the is the are there proof points to prove out the value of this transaction? So back when I was at Digital River, we would look at that all the time. In the context of if I buy this and and I'm gonna you know maybe just shut it down and move all my customers, which are the ones that are most likely to, to leave because they we don't they don't fit with our product yeah. versus the ones that are certainly not going to leave because we hit every single one and we can do it seamlessly. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Matt, I don't know if you have anything that you want to add. Was this the question was, what customer data would you look at in a transaction? Um, I can tell you more from a seller perspective on this one. Um, daily active users, weekly active users, monthly active users, uh, like new signups on a daily perspective. Like those are the ones, I mean, I'm used to from a clean room perspective doing it. I, I will say the other one though, um, again, going back to this data thing, it, it's, you know, you definitely look at volume of data and then also uh, which fields, for example, someone might have. Like when I go back to like, the, let's call it social data, for example, I'm very usually interested in, let's say they use the Instagram and Facebook APIs. I'm making this up, but not really because this is what I did before. But like basically, um, you would start to look at what derivatives they have off those. Like in other words, have they used, um, proclivities in terms of searches or likes and things like that to build their own uh, derivatives that you might find useful. So there's like, there's other stuff like that's a little more qualitative, quantitative. Mm -hmm. How many of those do they have? Mm -hmm. it, it, anything from your perspective of data that you, you 
received during an acquisition that just doesn't get used. And it's, you, I mean, we've heard the term digital landfills. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. The short, well, let me let me answer that in a slightly different way. I'll just tell you a, transi- a transaction we just backed out one of my startups that I'm on the board of, and it was much more around um, inability to use, again, social data, I'll just leave it like that, social data in the way we wanted to use it based on API terms of service. Um, and so that is, I have seen a lot of transactions built on data that nobody can actually use in the way they want to use it, uh, amazingly so, and this is, goes back to like when maybe a CFO is only involved or something like that, so that's, I've certainly seen that. Yeah, one of the things we diligence is compliance risk, and that's not just government compliance, but contractual compliance. Are data sources likely to be available after the transaction? Can they be used in the way you uh, intend to? And can that data source hold you hostage and up your prices in some unexpected way? Uh, And if they do, do you have an alternative kind of way to get to that same data without you know, paying the, the ransom. Any reactions from the audience? Anybody have an example that you want to share? Okay, I have a question. Okay, so in most of these M and A's, uh, at least I've been part of M and A's on both on the buy side and on this <laughs> acquirer and on acquiry. Um, so uh, the challenge has always been with keeping the teams, right? Fine. So most of the time, especially if it's a, if the startup has been around for quite some time, everybody's sort of tired, looking for their exit point, mm-hmm. things like that. How do you incentivize these teams? Like, and I agree with his term. Like, th- three years is actually right in the sense that by the time you get the teams integrated, it, it's about 18 months in, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, how do you? Wh- what's your latest strategies which you think are working right now uh, in terms of keeping the teams? Uh, uh, what do you call uh, enthused about actually being part of the acquisition? I mean, uh, especially in this market, right? I think this is a great question. Uh, At Kickdrum, we look at the people, there's a couple lenses to look at that through. One is, do you have key people risk? And you can do some data-driven things around their building commit history to actually see who are the people that, you know, are in the most are the only ones that build the most important part of your product and really from a data driven manner understand who's who your key people are and figure out how to bear hug them uh the other a lot of times in um in pe transactions uh the there's not a lot of equity given anymore there used to be but there's not anymore so it usually has to be about painting a vision for the future and bringing in leadership that's fresh and exciting. In strategics, it's a little different, right? Because a lot of times these are smaller uh, companies being bought by much larger companies where there's an opportunity to learn and experience a new culture and environment. Uh, you know, Maybe you're surrounded by a lot of really smart people. I personally like to be one of the least smart people in a room because that means I'm going to learn a lot. And uh, there's a lot of people like that, especially in tech, because mostly we're lifelong learners, right? So we want to be around people who learn. Um, but you know, to me, it's really about prioritizing that risk. And similarly, if there is a real risk there, mitigating it, whether that is 
quickly cross training, building out additional capacity, things like that, where the where you're not con- convinced you can mitigate the risk in another way. You have to to mitigate it with depth. Yeah, I'd say um, certainly all of that. I think the the, the stupid answer I, that came to mind initially was, well, you got to have an earnout. Right. Um, I've never done a deal where I was a buyer where I didn't have an earn out for the team of some kind, usually with one in your two year cliffs. Um, beyond two years, you're kind of like pushing it. Right. Um, so one two year earnouts, uh, usually that's like a big stock chunk or something that if I can preserve my capital. The, but the other side of it really is during diligence. I feel like there's something that's really important during diligence where um, if you are trying to discuss how you're going to build a new product together and the team that you are that's the buy the, the team you are buying I guess is the best way to say it, it sounds terrible um, but but basically if if that team continues to talk about their product as if they're just getting a new funding round and they're building it inside of you you know it's not going to work out like on some level that's usually an abandoned cycle for me but like you're still going to have that around that's number one but number two is to keep them there I think the the ones that don't do that. They're excited to build something together. I think that's the kind of like human reason to stay, if you will. But the, the dumb answer for me would be like, yeah, one and two year earnouts. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, I agree. I I think uh, certainly you have to do that for your key people. The yeah. the question is how wide and broad and deep do you go with that? And that really probably is a case by case situation depending on and what your goals are? Actually, in his world, in the PE world, man, I found that they only like they only incent the CEO to stay. So, which is always like one of those mistakes, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a really small circle of of people that are incented in PE. Typically, uh, it's there's it's not like strategic acquisitions at all. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, Matt. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, thanks for the question. Thanks all. Thanks, Carter. Thanks again for listening to the AWS for Software Companies podcast. For more conversations with global software leaders, subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please feel free to share these episodes on LinkedIn or other social media. Thanks again for listening.